What's up, everybody? Welcome. Welcome to the Artists of Data Science Happy Hour. It is a Friday, June 11th, 2021. Super excited to have all of you guys here, man. Uh, hopefully, you got a chance to tune in to the podcast. I released an episode with the one and only Data Science Thunder from way down under, Steve Nori. Uh, it was a one of one of my favorite episodes to to record had a great time uh hanging out with him uh man so a lot of good friends here in the in the happy hour what's up ken g is in the building ken my man what's going on uh mark vin eric russell super excited to have all of you guys here man um hopefully everybody's had a good week hopefully everybody is uh, excited for the weekend uh we are officially live i'm broadcasting on linkedin youtube and twitch this is the first live Arts of Data Science Happy Hour. Uh, super excited to to have this capability now on LinkedIn to do this. Um, let's get right into it, man. So <clears throat> let's open up with with a very uh, interesting thing that I saw on LinkedIn. Um, somebody posted something on LinkedIn, uh, and she said that, "Hey, if you're an aspiring data scientist, just remove the word aspiring from your." Your title no big deal i totally agree with her but then there's a lot of clapback there's so much clapback somebody was so upset about this that he decided to write a post calling her out um and then the you know the post was just like oh i saw a senior data scientist at this company talking about if you're an aspiring data scientist blah 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 whatever and it kind of i felt like blew away out of proportion um so i'm excited to see what everybody else's views on this topic are um i I mean, personally, I feel like I, I agree that if you're an aspiring data scientist, right, it's okay to just remove the aspiring from your from your you know headline and just say, "Hey, I'm a data scientist." Um, just kind of from a self-image type of perspective. Some of the arguments I saw made against that were that you know, if you're an aspiring brain surgeon, why don't you just remove you know, start calling yourself a brain surgeon? But the thing is, man, there are steps to become a brain surgeon that society has agreed upon. You can't just take a bunch of classes on Udemy or Udacity and then just become a brain surgeon. You've got to go through steps to do that. There's another argument while well, like, it was talking about, oh, well, you should just call yourself all aspiring astronauts. You just call themselves astronauts. Again, there are steps to go through that, right? That you have to go through because you, you just can't just become an astronaut, right? Somebody has to agree to send your ass into space for you to become an astronaut. Um, and it's funny enough, I'm wearing a shirt full of astronauts. Uh, but let's let's turn the floor over to, to Mark on this one. Mark, let's get the conversation started, man. Mark is currently on mute. Uh, his audio is all messed up. Vin, let's go to Vin. Uh, I don't know what is going on here if the uh, audio is uh, not allowing people to uh, unmute. Um, I guess I'm I finally to... unmuted. All right, great, great. <laughs> There's maybe some feature on here that's not allowed. The host, it says the host won't let me unmute, which is interesting. Right. Well, that was, uh, yeah, that was that's that. definitely definitely my fault, guys. Uh, apologies for that. Um, yeah, so Mark, man, let's, let's get this conversation started, man. Uh, you're, the yeah. one, you're the one that uh, you brought me to, brought this to my attention. I was like, oh, man, this is going to be an interesting conversation to start a Friday off with. Uh, go for it. So real quick, I, I, I first of all, let me put it out there. Like, I agree with you, but I actually followed up with someone on that post and, and had a conversation with them and the messages. And they brought up a really interesting point as to why, like, they felt the data science style was was important. I go into my own opinions because I thought it provides pretty good balance of context. Okay. Was essentially their kind of use case was that they had a data engineer, a data analyst, and a data scientist to to each um, on their team, and they're all called data scientists. <laughs> and so essentially, 
um, they were very unclear of what their role was and people had put on different expectations on them. And they've all essentially are working as data scientists with no clear goal or clear direction. And it's been causing a lot of turmoil. And so from, from that individual's perspective, like that title was really, really important because it's been causing so much havoc on their team. And when I heard that, I'm like, oh, that's an interesting context I wasn't even aware of. And I feel like that doesn't really happen in startups because in the start, which I'm part of, because in startups, I like, I kind of do it all. This whatever, whatever shows up on my doorstep for the day. It's, I just try to get it done and figure it out as I go. Um, but regarding the, the aspiring, going back to my own opinion, I feel like for the aspiring, um, I feel like there's definitely levels to it. You know, if you're um, if you're day one <laughs> trying to learn data science, um, maybe aspiring is nice because you're nowhere near getting close to a job. Um, you know, you're you're still a student. But if I think you're, I think this is where a lot of people are at. If you've done the kind of work, you have the skills, maybe you've done a couple of projects, and you're currently job searching. I feel like the aspiring is is shooting yourself in the foot because. Personally, I'm seeing that and you're like, oh, so you're not a data scientist yet. So you're, you're, why would I hire you? Um, you're still working on it, right? Um, and I feel like that's, I feel like that's when you should really remove it. And a lot of my argument is that like, I feel like the market will, will decide for you. Um, can you do the job? Yes or no. And if you're, you're calling yourself a data scientist, but you can't get a role, the market is deciding for you that you're not really a data scientist per se yet um, from the market's eyes. And, um, and then from there, I think you should just try a different strategy of trying to, how can you self-brand yourself to kind of get into that data role? Um, and so similar to you, uh, before, you know, I, I was pre-med, I thought I'm going to be a doctor. There's licensings and boards to be a doctor <laughs> to get that credential. Data science is really not there yet. We're not like CPAs or lawyers, maybe in the future, but, um, Literally anyone can learn off of YouTube. My degree is in community health and I just learned off YouTube and coding to kind of break into this field. Yeah, man. I, I definitely like your perspective. Speaking of learning off YouTube, let's go to Ken on this topic. Ken, first of all, man, it is an absolute pleasure to have you here, my friend. Sure, it's been long overdue. I'm glad I could make it in. Yeah, man, uh, happy to have th you. Th this, I think this one is, is really interesting to me. I recommend if someone's asking me what they should put in their tagline, I recommend that they are just transparent about what they're doing. If you're a college student, you can say that you're a student. You can say you're a data science student. I think that that's perfectly acceptable. Um, I generally don't. I think the signaling is a little bit weird if you're saying that you're a data scientist when you don't currently have a data science job. I think it's perfectly fine for you to believe you're a data scientist. Like everyone who is learning data science is a data scientist. If they don't have that mindset already, I would argue you're probably not going to make it quite as far in the field as you could. Um, but if you're saying something to the broader community, I think it's perfectly okay if you're even pursuing freelance work or something like that to say you're a data science freelancer or to say that, again, you're a student of data science or something in that domain. To me, that is very honest, but it's also, um, it, it's not as kind of weirdly, um, uncomfortably optimistic as data science aspirant or, or aspiring data science or whatever that might be. So I'd say that at first, you should look at, hey, where, where do I stand and how do I make that sound as honest, but as good as possible? I think if someone is a student, like no one's gonna, no one's gonna fault you for that people respect that you're learning this field. Um, if you're aspiring, that actually doesn't convey as much information as a student does because aspiring, we don't know what you're doing to become a data scientist. You could just be saying that like, Oh, I, you could look in the mirror and say that I want to be a data scientist every day. But if you're a student, then you're clearly actually studying towards that goal. So I would, I would you know, consider again, where your, where your current path at, uh, is at and 
think about how to integrate that into your story. Thank you very much for that, Ken. Uh, I like that. I like that viewpoint as well. Uh, let's go to Makiko. Then after Makiko, let's hear from Vin. Makiko, are you still in the building? Oh. Hey, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you now. Okay. Yeah, I wasn't sure if there was like an audio thing. Uh, so I think I think everyone had good points. <clears throat> I think the only thing I would just sort of caution is just to make sure that like, you know, there's a lot of people here on this call. Uh, definitely not me, but a lot of people on the call who have sort of influence and kind of audience. So I would just be really careful about sort of what we say and how we kind of like gatekeep the field. I think that's really important. Um, you know, but I also think too, like, so uh, funny enough, Greg, he had this thread going where he had posted a chart of like a data engineering skills roadmap. And some people had looked at it and they're like, oh yeah, like this is all the skills like I need to know. And then you also had people who like were asking questions like, oh, well, like how do I get into the field or how do I get like what tools or libraries do I need, right? And I think what's tricky about like certain sort of professions now, like data science, is that working as a data scientist, it is a practice. It's not really like a specific functional role. So there's a lot of skills that could be very useful. Um, but a lot of times I think, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of skills that could be useful. There's a lot of tools that could be useful, but it's really the way you sort of leverage a lot of that. And I, I feel like people have this habit of kind of like selling themselves on features, as opposed to like, what is the value that they bring? And to some degree, I feel like that's a very sort of like junior mindset because you're as a college student, you're coming out and, and granted, I've seen adults do this. So, you know, that's right. Like, it's, you know, it's not an age thing. It's more of a, like, how much contextual knowledge do you, do you have about that field? Um, but, you know, for example, I, I'll see a lot of college students who, or people who even come from like a technical consulting background, where they just kind of list out all the skills, like in their sort of uh, profile and resume. And, you know, I mean, that to me is kind of like, if it's a college student, you, I can kind of understand that. Um, but I think, you know, the two main themes, I guess, for me is I make sure, number one, that if we're already in the field, we're not gatekeeping other people's opportunities to get into the field. Um, and also, secondly, to for people who are looking to work as a data scientist or to get into the field of data science and machine learning, understand that like certain titles, for example, you want to be consistent about because, you know, for example, if I'm going into a machine learning engineering role, I'm probably should not be saying I'm a data scientist or a data analyst, uh, merely because that will attract work that is not entirely what I want for my future. Right. Um, but I think everyone else's points is like totally totally spot on, you know? Yeah, I'm definitely loving uh, everyone's viewpoints and the diversity of viewpoints. I think that's one of the great things about this group that we, we get together every Friday. Uh, so for everybody watching on the live stream, there is a link to register for this thing. Uh, you guys are more than welcome to come and join in on the conversation. Let's go to the big homie, Vin Vichista. Go for it, man. I, so here's my thing. What a data scientist, well, what a data analyst is now is what a data scientist was in 2016. And if you look at the job description, it is the exact same job description. If you pull one from 2017 and now you look at an analyst, the analyst does exactly the same thing as data scientists do. And you've got an entire, I mean, an entire boatload of data scientists who got into the field in 2014, 2015 as basically analysts and have been doing analyst work for five or six years. And these are the people that gatekeep. And I don't get it. It's always these, it's always that crowd who, if you look at I mean, you pull up the resume and you look at them and you say, okay, but what have you done? What'd you build? What is it that you would then call a data scientist that this person who's just graduated from a boot camp doesn't have? And that's where my gripe on, you know, the argument over, are you an aspiring data scientist? Are you a data scientist? Are you an analyst? Are you an data engineer? Are you an ML engineer? Are you a, an architect? A P, you know, everyone that I hear doing the the harsh 
hard arguments for where the lines are. It sounds like people that are arguing over whether a hot dog is a sandwich. And that's really, that that's what I hear is, okay, well, you're not a data scientist because you don't have enough stats. Well, okay, when was the line? Which statistics are they missing? Well, you know, and they'll they'll throw something out. It's like, all right, so you personally, when's the last time you used that in your job? Well, but but it's but you need it. You need to understand. I'm thinking, okay, come on. Now you're being disingenuous. Look at it, what it is that you do to create value and explain that to me. And I do this a lot with companies and I don't want to get into a sales pitch for myself, but I'll go into a company and I'll say, look, show me a data science project where your rate of return was higher than using analytics or an expert systems approach, or even just AutoML. Show me how your rate of return was higher using your expensive skill set. And the majority of the time when you do that audit, you you come to find that data scientists are not returning higher until they actually start changing their process completely. And so a lot of people who are in the data science field are, they're not applying all of the capabilities that they're using to prevent other people from getting into the field for. And that's the, like I said, that's the gripe I had. If you can create value with data, your CEO straight up doesn't care what you call yourself. You can call yourself a senior Obi-Wan Kenobi. It doesn't matter. CEO don't care. And we have to get away from job title being such a meaningful data point because in reality, the only people that care about job title are marketers trying to figure out what ad to target at you and recruiters trying to figure out what job they're going to try to get you to, to go into next. It's a meaningless set of words. So let's talk about value creation. And a lot of people coming out of boot camps can create a lot of value for businesses. So I, I don't understand the argument. Call them whatever they want to. Thank you very much, Ben. Yeah, I definitely. I mean, these are all great points. And just, I mean, again, we're going to bust out with the, uh, the philosopher harp. I'm just not up for titles, man. Like, I think like this type of status signaling that some people are doing, being gatekeepers, it's just, uh, it's, it's what's the point, man? What's the point? It's, it's not like, it, like, like I mentioned before, it's not like we have to go through a series of steps that society recognizes, and then we can dub the a data scientist, right? That's not how this, this field works. And, and there is lots of blurred lines. I think for me, when I say data science or data scientist, to me, that that's like an all encompassing terms. That's to me, like a data analyst, a data engineer, machine learning engineer, data architect, like all these people to me fall under this umbrella of data science. Um, so let, let's go to Eric. I would love to hear your perspective on this. So, you know, I just think that everyone can like do what they want to do individually and I'm not going to give anybody too much grief about it, but my own personal philosophy is I, tr I try not to put anything in my, like my LinkedIn title or wherever that I wouldn't feel like totally comfortable, like owning and defending in a job interview, because that's where it's going to matter. You know, if you put it on your LinkedIn profile, but you never post and no one looks at your LinkedIn profile and you never update it, like you can put anything you want on there. Nobody's looking, right? It's when you're actually in a job interview talking with a real person, again, that's like really the only place that it matters is can you just have a conversation and be a real person with another real person about whether or not you want to work together. And so I just think that that's, that's really important. And for me, I, I, you know, and even like for me, sometimes it's, you know, I didn't, I didn't put data scientist on my um, LinkedIn profile for like kind of for a, what I felt like was kind of a long time, but that was just my own personal choice. I did the same thing back when I was getting into marketing and I, I didn't do it after I'd read a book and a bunch of blog posts. It was after I had kind of done something with it. And then I was like, okay, like after a little while of doing it, I feel comfortable owning this. And so if I feel like I can own it and 
speak about it and that, then great. And if I have a conversation with somebody in a job interview and I feel I somehow have this like realization that I know absolutely nothing. And I'm like, Whoa, I don't feel comfortable with this anymore. You know, what? I'm going to take it off and no one's going to care. Like in the next week, no one will even remember that I had marketer written in my title. And it turns out I was not a marketer yet. You know, it doesn't matter. So that's, that's kind of my rule of thumb is if I feel like I can sit with it. I like that. I think that kind of ties in very well to like just the self image type of aspect of it. Right. Um, I mean, you can have a self image as a, brain surgeon, but unless you take the steps to become one, then you're not going to officially be one, right? And it's kind of different for, for data science. Um, a lot of great comments right here in the chat. Um, again, if anybody wants to join in, the link is in the description. So you guys are all free to come in. Would love to have all of you guys here. Greg, let's hear, actually, before we get to Greg, I know Greg, you also have a question. I want to go to Joe on this. Let's get Joe's perspective. There's one uh, perspective that, that we missed. And if anybody else wants to chime in on this topic, by all means, please let me know. I can, uh, you know, I could, I could add you to the queue and we can uh, hear your voice before we move on to the next topic. Sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm the guy who showed up like midway through the uh, question or the discussion. So what was the original question that's one this gatekeeping yeah. conversation. Yeah. So, so there was another recovering data scientist from Utah. That was not you who made, so a, <laughs> who, who made a post uh, calling out some other data scientists post. Right. And essentially, Oh uh, shit. Yeah. And, and essentially it was like, you know, he was mad that some senior data scientist at Amazon made a post that was telling aspiring data scientists to just, you know, remove aspiring from their headline and just call yourself a data scientist. And, uh, he was rather upset about that, and so were many of the people who agreed with him in his comments. Um, so let's hear from Joe on this, and then let's hear from oh boy. Yeah, that, that's uh, supposed to be in a fun spot in front of both these guys. So um, Matt's closer to me, so you can like my house. Uh, so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I've been in the data field for a long ass time. Let's put it that way. I mean, I was doing data science before it was even a thing, and I think by the time I called myself a recovering data scientist, I think it was a, like data science is a cool job. So I think. What I've learned is titles or um, they signal something, right? But, you know, if you want to call yourself an aspiring data scientist, I say go for it. Um, I, I just think the thing you need to recognize is there's every action has a consequence. I think Eric hit this on the head, right? Like the only time I, I figure, think about when it's going to matter. Like to me, if I call myself a recovering data scientist or, a, you know, whatever adjective you want to use, it doesn't matter to me. Like I have enough of a track record at this point, like, and I've done enough things that I think I can kind of, you know, my, my career stands on its own because I've been around long enough, but a lot of people don't have that luxury. And so I think you really need to, um, yeah, I was a data, data, data hipster. Um, it didn't mean it to sound that way, but I know it came across that way. So I, whatever. Um, yeah, I'm that guy now. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know. I mean, I, I, I can see, you know, I, 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 I guess what, Matt, what, what was your counter argument to, to Marx? I didn't, I didn't see the article, so I don't want to shed light on, on what you were trying to say. Yeah, I didn't notice that Matt was here. So Matt, go for it, my friend. I, <laughs> we were talking about his post the entire time. I didn't even realize the dude was here. So glad to have you here, my friend. Uh, so let's hear yeah. from, from Matt. And then uh, definitely I want to hear from uh, my friend Kalpana after this, and then we'll go to, to Greg. Uh, but you got the floor, my friend. Go for it. I think um, I'm not necessarily upset about it. Like From my perspective... Uh, like I don't care what people call themselves. Like people are going to call themselves whatever you want. Uh, from my perspective, it's more the fact that other people are encouraging absolutely anyone to call themselves a data scientist. And like it's 
It's really important, like in, in the post, she really said on the third paragraph, like you, you know, maybe you can't even write a line of code. Like that's, it's really important. We're talking about people who don't even know how to write a line of code. She says, go ahead, call yourself a data scientist. And, you know, like, okay, like we're going to be very inclusionary here. But like the purpose of titles is to be exclusionary to begin with. You know, like everyone here is saying they don't care about titles. But, you know, once I start making fun of your mom, you're, you're going to start caring because of that mom title is really important. Only your mom has that title. And so it's a, it's exclusionary in purpose. And so, you know, when, when we start talking about data scientists, you know, people like it's such a messy word because it means so many different things, but at at some level, it, it still is exclusionary. And I think, you know, I expect the data scientists to be able to write a little bit of code. I expect them to be able to provide business value. I expect them to be able to do something that matches, you know, the, the six-figure income that they make, you know, and so, you know, we, we can say what we want, but like, you know, you shouldn't just, you know, if you're a data scientist and you're trying to prove to your boss that, hey, I, I'm worth this much money, you know, you shouldn't then go out and say anyone can be a data scientist and just all you have to do is start calling yourself that. So that's really where I'm coming from. Right on, man. Thanks for uh, thanks for that viewpoint. Let's go to Kalpana. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I'm I'm assuming. I mean, I was a few minutes late, but I'm uh, assuming it's about how people um, portray themselves in terms of their titles in data science. That was what it was revolving around. Yeah. That's yeah. Yeah. Around that, yeah. Yeah. So I I actually like from all the from from all that I've heard till now, and from what I know, each of us know uh, when you're when you're actually working on a data science project, and we know this so well. That when we're working on a data science project with a team, somewhere along the way, you're going to not know something and you're going to tap your friend's shoulder saying, have you gone, have you, have you done this before? And they'll give you a link. They'd send it over and be like, Hey, I use this. And we know that there are things we don't know there. And we know that there are these parts in those projects that we just love doing. It's those parts of the projects we get really good at because it just, you know, it stays with us and it, it, it makes, it's how we tick. It's how we tick in those projects. And yeah, we do, we can do the whole thing, but um, we have our favorites and anyone who like any, anyone within this who has done these projects, they know this. So now I feel like when people, when, when people want to, you know, people who haven't been in that field maybe or have not done enough of, uh, have not explored enough and they want to put it up, um, especially like I, I saw that post um, uh, that Matt put up and uh, I kind of like, I can I kind of understand that in in a way about, um, you know, about how so many people just put it up. And many times I feel like it's simpler to just say what, like literally say in very simple words, what you're going to do. Like, I know there's this guy on LinkedIn. I, I've forgotten his name, but he, his title, his title is I help people crush LinkedIn. That's his, that's his LinkedIn title. And it's so simple and it's so straightforward and it's not, a, it's not a job title. It's what he does. So I feel like when you're, when you're telling people you want to, you want to show who you are, I think what you should, it'll be a pretty good idea to just say what you do. For me, I, I graduated like uh, a year ago. So I really didn't want to put a data scientist over there because um, I used to look at the experience, but turns out all my work, I mean, like I was taken as an AI engineer. And, and in two different areas where I had two different jobs. So, I mean, in AI itself, it was two different areas. 
So in one side, I was actually doing applied mathematics. On the other side, I was doing um, something in the field of ed tech. So I, what I thought I'd do is I'd just say I solve puzzles. So if anyone asks me tomorrow that what do you do and can you solve a puzzle, I'm going to take out Mankala, like this game I learned when I was a kid. And I can prove that I solve puzzles because I play that game and that game is a puzzle. So like push, push comes to shove, I can always show that, you know, I solve puzzles and, and then, and then from there show that, okay, I can do a little more about this. You know, I can maybe apply this in more games because I currently work in gaming, in gameplay AI. So I think it's a really, it's a really safe and fun also fun way of, of kind of putting your title in such a way that you tell people what you do and people will and it's kind of different in a way because people be like okay that's that's really short and yeah it's simple but let's see let's see a little more let's go onto that page and see exactly what kind of uh, what how does she help people how does he help people let's go further and see it so that's right. what i thought when i heard all of this right, well thank you Kalpana. if you guys don't already follow Kalpana, please follow her she leaves some of the best comments i've seen on linkedin she's super insightful uh, always love seeing her stuff pop up on my feed let's go to mikiko and then after mikiko greg i promise we didn't get to you because i know you also have a question to uh, to tack on but i definitely want to get your thoughts on this um, mikiko go for it okay <clears throat> Sorry, I'm trying to find the mute button on the iPad. I mean, so I think I think what's really hard about social media is, and, and, and I'm not calling anyone out here on this channel, right, is that uh, LinkedIn is also, it is a tool for some amount of like content marketing generation. Once again, not calling anyone out here. Um, so I think there, there is something to be understood. And, but I think part of that, right, is um, the fact that a lot of times people don't really want nuance. You know, it's like that question always of like, how do I get better in this, like in, in a role, like could be data engineer, could be data scientist, could, could be whatever. Right. And it, they always kind of go to tools and skills. And it, it, it's, it's like, on the one hand, like, do you, do you do, like, do you go on false positives versus false negatives? Right. Like, do you want to prevent someone who has the capabilities of doing the work from getting into the field? Right. Or do you care more about screening people who are just absolute, and I, I don't want to say trash, that's mean, who are not quite yet at the, I mean, but there are some people who are like trash as human beings, right? Like, but, but I mean, like on a personal moral level, right? But there are people who don't quite yet have the skill set. Uh, and do we sort of shoo them out there and go, go fall flat on your face, cause challenges for all your teammates. Right. So I think it's, it's, it's a hard thing. Right. I think it's like that question that, that underlies hiring, hiring, yeah, underlies hiring too. Right. Do you try to come up with a holistic process that would account for the different ways that people can add value or are you Google and do you just try to like, or Fang and do you just try to screen out like every possible sort of, you know, false, like positive just so because you can offer the benefits and all that right so i think it's it's one of these tricky situations i feel like on the one hand if you have the audience you do have sort of like the moral responsibility to you know not say to people like hey go quit your job and then try to pivot into another field without having the skill set and doing a boot camp um but on the other hand a lot of times people also don't want to hear that like they kind of want to hear the hero story and they kind of want to imagine themselves in the hero's shoes they don't really like imagining the, like at times six to eight months of, you know, I don't say practically starving, but, you know, living on Medicare and all that and like working on the skills part-time or whatever while you're working full-time to do that, right? So it, it, it's this hard balance between how do you sort of ensure that you're not sort of gatekeeping, but at the same time, giving people the real real in a way that will not sort of put themselves in like a worse 
spot. And to be honest, I haven't found that balance when, you know, I get tagged in someone's post and then a flood of people come into my inbox and they're like, Oh, like, how do we do this and that? And I'm like, honestly, uh, I can tell you my story. It, it's hard, but you probably don't want to hear it. So it's like, what is that? What is that balance? Right. Thank you very much. Makigo. Appreciate that. Uh, let's go to Greg. And then Greg, I know you got like a question right after that, but um, if anybody else wants to chime in at any point, well, yeah, let's go. Let's hear Greg. Yeah, we got, Ken. And, yeah, we got oh, go, Ken. 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 Go ahead. Uh, yeah, go for it, Ken. And if anybody else wants to chime in, uh, please do. And if anybody has questions, go ahead. Let me know in the chat. I will add you to the queue. Ken, my man, go for it. Yeah, I, I think I just wanted to to kind of hybrid what Eric and Mikiko are saying. I think that my biggest concern with people, you know, perhaps perceptually mis, misnaming themselves is that it would hurt themselves in the future, right? If we're talking about employability, if I'm calling myself a data scientist and I'm applying to a lot of data science roles, I've been that hiring manager where I've looked and I said, okay, like this person clearly is not qualified enough, but because I saw this data science title um, on their LinkedIn or whatever it is, I've, you know, I've wasted two or three minutes going through the resume again when they were not necessarily qualified enough. Um, not a big deal for me, but if you're looking at this at scale, I think that that could be challenging when you're perhaps misidentifying people uh, based on skill set or, or whatever you perceive to be a data scientist. Um, I think that it's interesting, though, a lot of boot camps encourage their graduates to say that they're a data scientist at certain XYZ boost boot camp. And, you know, that to me is also interesting. Is that perhaps the most effective technique for landing a job? So I would personally like to look at the data and understand, you know, if people are calling themselves in a certain way, again, like I think if you've gone through bootcamp, you're likely qualified to become a data scientist or to, to land one of those roles. Is there anything different between you being a, calling yourself a data scientist now, and then you actually landing that job and being a data scientist two weeks later? I mean, like, not really. But at the same time, again, I'd like to look at that data and I'd like to understand that problem a lot better. To me, that is inherently fascinating and a cool data problem for perhaps for us to look at down the road. Thank you, Ken. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, like your viewpoint there. I mean, it, it's not like like I've, I think I've probably said this a few times, but yeah, you can't you can't take a boot camp and get into certain fields, right? For example, you can't take a boot camp become a CFA or a CPA or an astronaut or a brain surgeon. As much as I wanted to become an astronaut by going to a boot camp, it did not work out. Um, let's go to Greg and then Greg has a follow-up question and then I'm scanning the chat here. There's a lot of great comments in the chat. So uh, after Greg, if anybody wants to chime in, please let me know, just raise your hand or send me a private message. Uh, but otherwise we'll hear Greg's perspective on this and then move right into Greg's question. Yeah. Um, I think, I think you guys covered it all. And, uh, I, I tend to agree with, with all the points you guys have made from, from Ven, Mikiko, Ken, uh, Eric, uh, the only thing I can think about is, you know, remove social media uh, from the equation. So what does the word aspiring mean now? Right. So it means nothing. And at the end of the day, um, I believe that companies are the ones who are driving the hot trends in terms of job titles, uh, because you hear through the grapevines that they're hiring certain positions and now we want to identify with those positions. Um, they are responsible also to create the right uh, procedures to uh, vet candidates to make sure that they do qualify. And can you alluded to that? Um, you have to make sure as a hirer that somebody calling themselves a doctor um, and whatever is in fact 
uh, qualified for the job before you you bite the bullet, right? When you do the hire. So uh, if my neighbor is calling themselves aspiring data scientist, I think due to social media, they're just doing things to get visibility and also doing things to show that they are a potential candidate for uh, somebody who's getting to do the hire. Now, there's also uh, a danger in putting in my resume. Again, forget social media. So if you're my neighbor, I don't know whether you're calling yourself on your resume aspiring data scientist or data scientist. If I call myself a data scientist on my resume, now the only visibility that I have is what I showcase to the hirer. And it's not the hirer's fault if they don't know that I'm lying or not, right? So they have to have the proper framework to kind of catch whether I can do the work or not. So uh, in other words, I think we're, we shouldn't sit here looking at the neighbor calling themselves data scientists and get mad at that, especially if we're not ours. They want to call themselves uh, data god. Uh, that's up to them. This is just a peer pressure from social media simply because they want to find a way to get that attention, get that network going and things like that. So regard, uh, without social media, I don't think we would have those conversations. I think that's, that's my view. And it's all about, you know, can you create value? Can you close that gap for the company? Are you showcasing that you're able to understand that pain point and leverage skills and tools that they're expecting you to use to uh, do the job? So I've worked with people who are actually doing things as data scientists and their titles are software engineers. So um, it, it really depends on what company you're working for and uh, what culture they have and um, what, what tools they have to solve issues. And um, that, that's, that's what I see uh, out there. So none of that should matter, uh, but it's all up to uh, how companies really promote these positions and showcase how valuable they are to them. Yeah. I'm wondering now, like, you know, is this the reason why these data science interviews are so intense and requires so many different uh, hurdles to get through is, is because of this oversaturation of people aspiring data scientists and data scientists. I don't know that that'd be an interesting thing to, to think about. Um, but, you know, let's go ahead and move on past this uh, topic. I think it was a great discussion. Um, Hopefully everybody enjoyed it. If you guys still have things left unsaid on this topic, please do let me know. We can come back to it. But first, let's go to Greg's question. Go for it, Greg. Yeah, my question is for Vin, actually. I'm glad you're here today. I wanted to ask you about one of the videos you put out. Uh, you talked about data curators. And I'm super interested in, uh, I'm super interested about that. We, we talk often about a lot of aspects in a data science life, project life cycle, um, but we don't talk enough about, you know, you know, we talk about data quality, how we need to spend time cleaning, et cetera. But is there a possibility that we can collect clean data at first try? So what do you see in the data collection realm uh, today and its future? And how can you tie the knot with data curator that you've described in your video? Vin has got a lot of amazing content on his YouTube. Guys, make sure and go check out his YouTube. Also, he's got an amazing series of courses coming out. Uh, so be sure to link to that in the chat. But Vin, what the heck? Data curator, man. Talk to us about this thing. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the plug. I really appreciate those. I need those as I'm uh, just getting started here. So I'll always appreciate it. Um, it. When you look at data curation, the reason why I bring up this role is because I see data engineering getting sucked into MLOps and ML engineer because th that platform has just kind of become the one platform to rule them all. And where I see data engineers migrating is more towards Okay, so what would you need from a data engineer if you were doing research? And really what you need to be able to do is know what data is out there because that's one of the hardest things 
I have as a data scientist is, yeah, I know what data that I know about, but from an internal standpoint, I don't know all of the data that's out there, especially in larger companies. I mean, there could be gold and I'd never know about it. And so there's this aspect of internal curation and there's even products like Microsoft is trying to automate some of the internal data discovery and data curation parts. But there's also external data. And when you look at what's available from third parties, what's available from, and companies used to attack this from, okay, if we find it, we're going to gather it, we're going to save it. And I see that switching. So now it's not, hey, we found it, we're going to save it. It's, I find it and I'm going to catalog it. So I'm going to tell, you know, here's where we could go to get this data. Here are the actual data points available. And then creating metadata around it, because that's really the hard part, is creating the metadata that would allow me to search and find that data and do the discovery piece of it in an easy automated way where I can do almost like a knowledge search. And eventually I hope that I can just build out the model, create a whole bunch of features and then have some other model go out and say, oh, hey, I think these features would also be helpful to improve your model. And again, that's back to having the metadata around what's available and what's out there. And so I look at the data curator role as not only you know one and done when it comes to gathering clean data, but also more of this cataloging role and metadata role where the metadata is basically, here's what's available and here's how you would gather it in order to do this in a rigorous way that you could actually create a model that was reliable and you could use this data in such a way that you could trust it. Because the most data that I come upon in a business, unless it's already gone through someone else's you know, I needed to use this for my model and through somebody else's cleaning process, it's use, It's almost unusable. I mean, I can do some analysis and exploration on it, but I have to go through another round, like an entire other iteration of regathering it in order for it to be good enough for me to trust in a model. And that's where I see the curator basically anticipating that need and doing all the work that I've kind of described that would set it up so that, you know, we can do manual knowledge discovery and discover new data that could help with the model. Model, but eventually, like I said, automate that because that would be awesome is to have a, a different type of model that could look at what I've what architectures I've selected from the repository, what features I've already built out, what I've already selected and which combinations of features that I've, I've selected for those initial runs and say, oh, hey, by the way, here's some other stuff that you might want to take a look at because we're getting to the point, especially in large, large businesses, there's no way I know all of the data that's out there and available that might be cool and useful. And so that's where I see the data curator coming in is filling that gap. Are you seeing um, that data curator, maybe its first customer is populating something like feature store? I mean, we're seeing a lot of automation through feature store. Is that what you're seeing where you want to curate the data, you want to create an indexed database of features that multiple models can build upon and uh, deploy a little bit faster in, in making sure you capture that metadata, that um, uh, historical change of that data, et cetera. Is that, is that where you see it? I see like a hybrid. I mean, I know what you're talking about, but when I look at Feature Store, I always think, okay, well, I need I need some different types of ver- versioning and metadata, you know, and, and so yes, but I don't think we're at f- like a fully feature complete feature store. I know that I'm kind of mixing the word feature mixed meanings here, but I hope it made sense. I don't think we're at the place where feature stores work 
for this particular use case. And I think everyone here, as I'm saying, this is like, yeah, I've had this problem. Yeah. I've, I've dealt with kind of this sort of an issue. And when I think about how does a feature store fit into the solution, I I don't know if that's the right solution because I, I don't necessarily think every time you find data that's available, you should grab it. And so not necessarily going out and, you know, building the pipeline right away because we have data, we can gather data, therefore we should. That's not always the right way to go about it. A lot of times you just want to say this is available and you want to catalog it not necessarily gather it. And so, I mean, the feature store kind of, it sort of fits that use case, but not a hundred percent. You know what I'm saying? Where I feel like there's just a gap feature there. There's an interesting analogy here from James in the chat. He's saying there's a data curator, almost like a librarian with the data sets as books and the features like a Dewey decimal system. Is that an appropriate analogy even? My mom is a librarian and she was the inspiration for data curator for me was because I was describing some of the problems I was having. And she said, yeah, that sounds like what I used to do. And when she explained the concept of creating a card catalog system and creating a, you know, how do you find stuff in a library? I went, Oh, oh, so okay. Oh, yeah, and it, it, that exact framing made it made sense to me. Awesome. Well, James, great, great uh, catch on that. I'm wondering. So, data curator, like, um, how, how would this role kind of? So, uh, I would imagine there's the real world, right? Obviously, and then there's databases, and then in the middle is the data curator saying, "Hey, let's capture these bits. These might be inform, you know, important information." But then also communicating with the data team, letting them know that if there is like there's this stuff out here that we're not capturing. And if you want to capture it, it's available. Um, is, is that kind of like the role they play? And, and like, it sounds almost like a blend between, I guess, like a data steward and like a data governance and metadata management type of role. It sounds like a really multifaceted type of role. Yeah. It's one of those roles that until we get all of this automation in place, it's going to be, like you said, very multifaceted, <laughs> but automation is actually allowing for this role to exist because without the, that data basically automated data gathering, discovery, pipeline creation and management, automated wrangling is starting to come out and it's, it doesn't, it's not terrible anymore. It's actually not that bad. So there's all of these different automation elements that allow someone to spend a significant amount of time, say 50% of their time on discovery. And in manufacturing companies, there are people that do supplier discovery full-time where they go out and they are trying to find suppliers who can make their supply chain more robust, who can add new elements to their supply chain. And it's very similar when you think about it. You know, if, if you need a different framework to think it through, think about a data curator as almost like a supply chain discovery type of role where the supply chain is the data. And so you're sourcing data based on data science needs and requirements. And just the same way as you source parts or raw materials in line with your manufacturing needs and your product needs. And it connects very, very nicely to value that way because you are reducing the cost of data gathering. You're improving data quality. So like you're saying, data quality, data steward, And there's all of those different pieces and components of the front end where you're adding to the value stream because you're building access to data that probably people didn't know existed in the first place. And as a data scientist, we don't have, I mean, I can't do that for three weeks. I just, I can't. And so having somebody that's done it before knowing essentially what the business cases might be and what the business needs and and model needs are now and 
probably over the next six months. And being able to anticipate all of those needs and having data kind of ready just in time, almost going back to the supply chain, uh, you know, the supply chain analogy. I see this this sort of library being useful beyond just a data science team, right? So it could be uh, a research department or even business who wants to innovate, right? So they come up with a business opportunity or a business pain point and they want to uh, gather data so they can build their justification or and, and build their entitlement for going after this innovation, uh, going inside of that library to pull data to analyze and uh, create some anecdotes uh, for that that idea. Uh, I think they can benefit from uh, the work of a curator, uh, as I understand it. So thank you for the uh, explanation. That was awesome. A couple of follow-up and, questions. You know, even using a data scientist to build a model to support their position of, hey, we should, you know, like you said, go after this innovation. You can actually use a data scientist to create a body, an evidentiary support for that strategy. And that's where, you know, you, you've nailed it with the data curator because now that's easy. And you can even, you know, this concept of citizen data scientists, you can almost automate this to the point where you need a data scientist for high end strategy validation. But for, you know, a one off pursuing a one off type project, you can probably do that yourself. Mm-hmm. So this data curator, is this somebody who's an experienced uh, you know, data scientist or they have experience building machine learning models or uh, <laughs> what type of like, what's the profile of, of somebody like this? You, you have to understand that's why I keep pulling it back to anticipating the need and being able to look at what it is that applied researchers are working on both right now, but also three months out, six months out. And your role as a data curator is almost front loading where you're looking down the pipeline, like I said, three to six months and saying, okay, what can I find? You know, and you're creating those processes that do discovery, do data discovery, both internal and external, and also doing a discovery of what processes that we may not be leveraging right now to generate data could. And there's all of these aspects of creating a, a, a discovery process, a data discovery process, both internally and externally. And it's an anticipation of the need. So it's that data science and all of the, the abilities to build almost a future need pipelines. And so it's a, you know, a little bit of data engineering, a lot of understanding data science and what could be needed, but it's also being able to sort of look a little bit beyond the horizon and understand, okay, so this is how I would, therefore, maybe I should be looking for. Awesome. I was going to get Susan Walsh on here, but Susan bounced. Um, Well, it was good to see you here, Susan. So hopefully if you re-listen to this, which we won't, um, thanks for for coming. Uh, Let's hear from Russell on this. I like his, uh, this analogy of an art gallery. Russell, talk to us about this. Evening all. Um, yeah, I've used the title Data Curator probably for about four or five years now, and I do interchange it with Data Translator and Data Liberator. I've tried a couple of different words to try and best describe the work that I do because, you know, I'm not a data scientist. Uh, tying back into the, to the first uh, question um, this evening, so I definitely work with data science, but I don't put data scientist in my title. Uh, data science is one of my skills, data analysis, business analysis, a lot of different things. Um, but yeah, so I, I use the, the art gallery as, a, as an analogy for this data curator. So if you imagine uh, each individual item of data is like an art piece on the wall. So you fully understand what it is. You know the history of it. You know who's painted it. You know the subject of it. Uh, you, you understand the, the brushstrokes of the artist. You can 
identify if it's a if it's a fraudulent piece of art or not. Uh, and you can sell this to anyone who comes in. You know, um, uh, from any language, you can describe it to them in the best way to try and get the sale. Uh, and you know the the stock within the entire place as well. So you can change it around uh, and optimize it for um, different times of the year. Uh, get the pipeline of new art coming in. Um, either buying from other sellers or buying from new artists around, and you keep the actual gallery in peak condition. You know, so with with uh, with AC and uh, uh, climate control, etc. Plus, if the art pieces need cleaning for any reason, you know how to clean them properly without damaging them. So, I think it's a real good analogy for curator where it works very very well with data so you know data is everywhere uh, and much has been said you know you don't want to pick up every single piece of data you want to be discerning and pulling data that's going to be optimal for your um your course at the, at the present time so yeah i like i said i've been using it for a while and it, it i think it really does work but I, I did change it around a little bit with with translator and, and some others also thank you Russell. yeah that's a really awesome uh, perspectives from everyone and i mean I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing roles pop up for data curator um, in the near future because of this very LinkedIn live session. Uh, Joe with a cute golden doodle that he had to go take away. That was a cute little puppy there, Mark. Let's go to you. Uh, for my question? Yeah. Okay, awesome. Uh, so my my question, um, so one of my kind of long-term career goals that I want to start presenting at, at conferences, um, something that's really kind of special to me is um, the fact that, you know, data scientists have really provided this kind of free, uh, free kind of resources and, and knowledge. And I want to one day give that back. Um, I don't think I'm anywhere close to <laughs> presenting at a conference uh, right now. But, you know, uh, I'm just curious what that process is like of like trying to identify a conference for data science to present to that. Is it coming from your your own work? Do you have to be intentional about like, I'm going to do this project. I'll go into a conference. Is it kind of just like up in the air? Um, yeah. I just like, how, what's your process for like getting to a point where I can present at a conference and really just add to to the data community knowledge? I think that that kind of happens like people will just reach out to you and, and send you messages and, and, and stuff that happens to me quite a lot uh but let's hear from ken g on this one and then after ken uh let's go to joe go for it ken yeah so first of all mark i think you're absolutely ready to speak at conferences uh, it's being clearly echoed in the chat um i'm i'm pretty early in this journey myself and so hopefully i can give you a good perspective on that what that looks like you know last year i maybe did one or two this year i've done five or six and so i'm slowly starting to do more and more of this over time and i was also very curious about a year ago how i would start doing more and more of this so i think if you're already producing content and you're telling stories especially if it is in an audio or video form this is going to happen organically if you did want to speed up that process a little bit it is about finding people who have either spoken at those conferences before or people who are involved in those types of things and finding a way to tell your story associated with um with their conference or 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 whatever things that they're posting um a, a very straightforward way to do this is for example like kate strachny incredible creator incredible organizer, um, she posts quite a lot of content on LinkedIn. And if you're constantly, if there are things that are right in your wheelhouse, talking about free learning, whatever that might be, and you're posting really great things around that on her content, that will 100% open her eyes. Also, you know, referrals, uh, I know quite a few people in this chat also know Kate, also know some other people at different conferences. 
And just networking and getting into things that way is also really effective. Uh, I I had um, Dr. Joe Perez on my podcast this week, and he gave me like the whole breakdown on how to do how to do this. Another thing you can do is start uh, what's known as a sessionized page, and so that's like a hub for speaking. So essentially, you're going on. You talk about the topics you want to speak on, and it's a place where companies can go or organizations can go to, to, to find speakers around specific keywords or whatever that might be. Uh, the last thing is just getting on some different podcasts, just getting your voice out there um, and, and using and leveraging LinkedIn. But first, I believe organically you can do this. Second, if you want to grease the wheels, just a little more networking and, and just talking and, and engaging with the right people engaging with these conferences to begin with. The, so the irony of all of this, this whole conversation is like in my head, I was like, I have to be a senior data scientist. I have to have the senior data science title first before I can present at a conference, which is pretty hilarious given the earlier conversation now what I'm hearing now as well. No, I think you're going to be really good at speaking in front of audiences first. <laughs> so, and this comes with practice. Like I mentioned, meetups is a really good place. Um, that's not really a place, but it's a thing. Um, find meetups you can go talk at. Um, I think this is a really good way to cut your chops. I've been running meetups for a long time. Um, and I think the people I've seen who have done really well speaking at, so there's certain levels to speaking, right? So it's like your meetups is kind of like playing at your local bar um, or a club or whatever. And then you start getting into, you know, bigger and bigger types of events. Like still DJ, I used to DJ a lot. So I kind of use that analogy a lot, but the, the thing is, you know, you're not going to be playing at like Tomorrowland if you're a DJ, like overnight, you're not going to be playing at like, you know, EDC or something like just out of the gate, like you got to build up to it. I mean, Ken's right. Like you got to get exposure. It takes a long time and you got to have something interesting to say too, but this only comes, I think, through repeatedly giving talks and stretching your own knowledge because otherwise you're just going to give kind of like a weird generic talk that nobody gives a shit about. Um, like I think getting your voice out there, blog a lot doing you know clarifying your thoughts right um it's that's number one way you're going to come up with an interesting topics to talk about but this is a separate discussion of whether or not you're even good at talking in public and that's why you got to do both um get comfortable speaking in front of audiences um and then just build yourself up there's probably local conferences uh Mikiko brought some up and it's like you know your local conference is not going to be nerves right it's a different level but you got to build up to it you ain't going to be talking there like out of the gate so you got to take the long game of this too and just think, okay, so like, you know, maybe in five years, I can talk at NeurIPS, maybe if I have something, but then you got to have something interesting to say. And then you, if you give a talk, it has to be a talk that people want to stick around and listen to. So there's a bunch of facets of talking. It's not, I think it's an aspiration. It's a good aspirational thing, being an aspiring data conference presenter, um, a data science conference presenter. <laughs> that should be a LinkedIn title. Um, so, uh, but the, yeah, I just had to change it today, to actually. What's that? Just put that on there, man. I mean, you know, I need, I'm, I'm going to add it today. Dress for the job you want, not for the job you have. So, um, but in all seriousness, it, it takes a long time. Um, I mean, I'm only now starting to get, you know, invitations to speak at like, like actually major conferences. Um, you'll be seeing those come out soon, but it took a long time, you know, and I, I kind of wallowed it up security for years, you know, but, you know, but you got to get your, your ideas out there, your name out there. And, um, but you have to have interesting shit to say, and you got to say it really well in public. That's, that's what a good talk is in my opinion. So. Uh, one of my mentors, my mentor sent me this really amazing uh, source of uh, preparing for, for these, uh, uh, for these kind of pitches and conversations and so on. It's brilliant. It's called, it's called Minto's Pyramid. And I'll just send it on the 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 public chat so if anybody is interested they they could take a look at it it's helped me a lot and it, it's really it's wonderful that page 
Thank you very much, Calpin. I thank you very much, Joe. Uh, Mentors Pyramid, I'll check that out. Another book I can recommend is, is a short little pamphlet by Alistair Kroll, same guy who wrote uh, Lean Analytics, Prepare, Propose, pr Present. Um, speaking of data science conferences, uh, DSGO Virtual coming up the end of uh, July. Uh, I'll be emceeing that event. And I think, Ken, you're doing a panel discussion as well, I believe. Uh, Joe's got a session on there as well, data engineering. Um, Andrew Jones has got a data cleaning session. Uh, and then I've got a session on uh, 12 steps to break into your data science dream job. Makiko, let's hear from you on this topic. And then I definitely want to hear from Vin on this because Vin, Vin's been, you know, a shit ton of conferences. Hey, uh, so just uh, to give a little bit more information, uh, sorry, I, plumbers. Um, well, they're in the, the, the next room. So let me just, um, yeah, so... There's a couple of different types of conferences. Uh, the academic ones, usually you have to submit a, uh, like a paper of some kind. Um, so as long as you're not sort of going for those and to submit a paper, you have to be associated with a lab and all this other stuff. It's a lot harder if you're you know out of a grad program, but if you take that out, lots and lots of opportunities. Um, so a lot of conferences, uh, some are tend to be a little bit more general. So for example, Lesbian Sue Tech is not a data science and machine learning conference. It's a conference for um, women, non-binary allies uh, of color who support the rainbow flag, right? Uh, so for them, like what they'll do is they will put out a call for pro proposals, right? And so basically what you will then do usually is you'll come up with an interesting topic where you feel you add value and you can kind of put it together uh, in either like what they call a keynote format, which is usually like 10, 15 minutes, or they will sometimes uh, ask for like technical workshops, which are usually around like 45 to 60 minutes long. Once you kind of determine the short list of topics you want to talk about, you'll usually flesh out a proposal. Um, a lot of the conferences will use this one site called paper roll call or something where you can submit different pro proposals um, and you can apply them to different conferences. So you don't have to just be like regionally located or all that, but to emphasize everyone's point, you have to have an interesting topic and you have to be able to add value. Uh, it can't just be like another like Pandas 101 tutorial, um, partially because, uh, what's his name? Uh, the Pandas guy, he does such a good job of it. Or is it, he, everyone knows who I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. No, 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 not McKinney. There's another, another guy who does the data school or something. Are you talking about Kevin Markham? Yes. Yeah. Right. So it's hard to beat Kevin Markham on the pandas or, or McKinney, right? Like, um, but it could be, for example, like one, one of the talks I did was specifically on, cause I was working on like COVID related research for Teldoc or Luongo was on the impact of, uh, like health modeling, like the impact of structural racist policies on like health modeling outcomes, right? Um, and even though COVID was at that point a very popular topic to speak on, um, my particular lens was like, look, I work at a chronic, at a, at a company that has like health data on people with chronic conditions, right? So anyway, but so it's usually you have a topic, you uh, submit a proposal, um, but for some of the ones, if you tend to get invited, usually that means they want to kind of bump up the priority of your speaking, you know? Um, so, but there, there's plenty of opportunities for that. If there are conferences that you really like, what you can always do is you can bookmark them. And whenever they put us like a call for proposal for, or when they ask for proposals, um, you can always like submit them. And even if they don't get accepted, a lot of conference, some of the conferences, they have like a five to 10% acceptance rate. Uh, a lot of times they might still actually give you feedback and that can be a very valuable experience, but meetups are really great. And also to some organizations like, um, for example, General Assembly, 
they will do like career panels uh, for people who are in the industry or things that are a little bit more of a general topic. And that can be a really nice, valuable way to contribute your value, uh, your insights. And yeah, sorry, I'm on like my third cup of coffee. I need more. Um, but yeah, so hopefully that's a, it's a little bit more information because I've spoken at them. I, I consider that a very low bar, you know, to be frank. So, I mean, if I've done it, I feel like anyone else can. <laughs> Thank you very much for that, Makiko. Appreciate uh, appreciate your input there. Um, just heads up, anybody listening on YouTube, Twitch, or LinkedIn, I know there's you know a couple dozen people listening. Uh, if you have questions, go ahead right there into, in, into the chat on whichever platform you're tuned in on. I'm watching the chat there. If anybody has questions, um, let me know. I'll add you to the queue. Uh, but for right now, let's go to Vin and uh, Vin's perspective on Mark's question. Yeah, I think what... And I figured this out by accident, like in 2014, pick a lane and pick a brand. And if you can, you know, that's the most important thing you can start out with because it's a really hard road. And I tried this way to submit proposals and no matter how good they are, it's a really hard road to submit proposals for talks. And what you end up having is the conference kind of says, hey, I know this is the talk you want to give, but here's the talk we want you to give. And you get kind of redirected into not giving the talk you want to give, which is the important one. And so the other way to get into it is to pick a lane and build out a brand, you know, and almost like you're marketing, build out a brand that's going to be you. And then that's what you want to talk about. That's the important stuff. That's the stuff that you, you want to have included in your talk. Those are the topics and become like, that's your thing. And don't like, don't deviate from your shtick, like make that one lane, your thing, be the expert on it, be the loudest voice on it. And then, you know, it's going to take about three months. You're thinking, Oh, this is going to take, no, it won't. If you find a good lane, you get traction and you stick to that lane, you're going to be able to give your talk around exactly what it is that you want to. And then fast after you give that talk for about three months, cause you're going to get asked, to do maybe two or three different conferences. As soon as you're done with that three months, move on. Don't fall in love with the talk because that's where people just disappear off the circuit is they try to do the same talk for a year. And it's really, you got about three months of life and legs on one particular talk. So as soon as it's done, just drop it, go to the next one. And that's really your brand voice is going to follow a lane and you want to pick a lane that's got enough room that you can do two, three, four years, because I've been doing this since 2015 and you can't, I, I can't tell you how many people were big influential back then and no one's ever heard of them anymore. You know, it's, it's really one of those things. If you want to have legs on the conference circuit, which is amazing because about year two cash shows up and you start realizing, wait, people get paid for this. And it's pretty awesome. You get job offers, you get opportunities to work with some really cool companies and it's an enormous opportunity, but only if you make it that far, like if you fall, it's almost like companies are waiting for you to fall off. It's like, all right, so did you make it past the 12 months? Oh, Hey, you're still here. Okay. Well, we'll, we'll bring you into one of our bigger conferences. Like SAP did that with me. They brought me into one of their bigger conferences and they're like, okay. And we'll, uh, Oh, it's two years. Hey, you're still here. And all of a sudden, like I said, opportunities like that started coming up. So pick a lane that's long, not just, you know, that one talk. Joe, go for it. I just want to ask Mark, like, you know, what, what's your motivation for wanting to get in the conference circuit? Like what, what's your why as a, 
So that was going to be my question as well. Okay, cool. High five, Harpreet. Good job, psychic. Um, this is going to sound hilarious. I didn't even know there's a thing called a conference circuit. I was like talking about a one-off um, and just, just to try something out. But now that you're talking about it, that, that sounds very interesting. I think the key thing for me is that uh, why I want to be vocal, I think mainland has spoken is seeing on my LinkedIn presence right now and trying to expand from there. But the there's kind of two components that I go by this philosophy of each one teach one. If I learn something, I want to share out with everyone so they can learn as well. Where are the best practices? Uh, the other thing is like, I have a lot of mentors and a lot of people I talk to. I, li- I like curating knowledge and gyms and sharing that out. Um, and then the third, t- third kind of main thing is like representation. Like I don't see that many people that look like me <laughs> in the data space and I want to be able to really show that. Um, so those, those are kind of the key things for that. Um, and then all, bef- even before I got, became a da- data scientist, um, you know, I've, people have always talked to me and said like, hey, you should consider motivational speaking or, or some type of thing like that. Or like, hey, you really inspire me. You should consider speaking. So I've always had that that push, but I've never had really anything to be passionate to talk about. And I finally had that with data science. Um, and so very early thoughts, I was just more so entertaining. Like, what was that? What would that look like? Um, I saw a lot more to, to figure out to see, like, if I even want to pursue a whole circuit, which is wild. I didn't even know that existed. But yeah. If you, if you knew how much some of these speakers are making on the conference circuit, it, it's crazy. I'm not just talking about data. I'm talking about like business gurus and self-help gurus and all this other bullshit, but like you're talking like 50 grand, hundred grand or more a talk, a talk, right? Yeah. We're all in the wrong career. Um, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, it's nuts. It's nuts. And you meet some of these people too. And it's like, like, man, um, it's, but you know, a lot of it's like writing, you know, you're a respected author, right. And like, you've done this, you've done that. And now you, now you're consulting, you know, presidents and CEOs and shit. Like that's how you start getting that kind of money. But the same thing can be done in data. I know some of us have mutual friends that are, they, they are professional conference people. They give professional talks, they give professional keynotes because they can get up on a stage and kill it. Right. And by kill it, I mean, they're an entertainer. They're not just going out there talking facts, talking, you know, data science stuff, whatever, but they're out there inspiring people. You know, and at the end of the day, that's really what conference organizers are looking for. It's like somebody who can like get the room packed, get them energized, you know, and they leave with like, they feel like they left the conference with a lot of value, right? You always got to look from the conference organizer standpoint too. Like, what are they, why would they hire you for this event, right? Typically they want to have people come back. That's why. Because conferences are a lot of money. They're they're a notorious money pit. Like barely anyone makes money in conferences. So if you can make money in conferences, it's all about your speakers. So just keep that in mind. Yeah, a lot of a lot of great tips here. I, di- I didn't know that. I mean, I didn't know speaking at conferences was so so lucrative, and also didn't know that. Um, I mean, I guess it makes sense because I've seen some speakers give the same talk multiple times, um, and so it becomes kind of like a like a. I don't want to say an act, but I mean, that's kind of what it becomes. And I think that highlights Finn's point there about um, just focus, get your, your talk down, and and kind of iterate on that. I recommend checking out uh, this YouTube channel. Uh, called Master Your Talks. Uh, so there's Brendan Kumarasamy, who's actually on my podcast as well. He's a phenomenal public speaker, and his his channel is filled with a lot of great tips. So definitely um, take a take a look at that that channel, and hopefully find some helpful information there. I got a question coming in from LinkedIn. This one is from Amaninder and Amaninder wants to know, how do you prevent yourself from information overload and be optimal in your research and learning? How do you ensure you master your stuff and mastering catching up with stuff is is always a struggle. Uh, Information overload and optimal in research and learning. I think uh, just focus on one thing at a time. That's what's helped me. Like that's the only 
bit of advice I can give you. Like just, just focus on one thing at, at a time, give yourself a block of period and say, Hey, look, you know what, for the next X number of days, X number of weeks, X number of months, this is the thing that I'm going to study and research and learn and get good at. And once I feel agitation by it, once I feel a little bit burnt out from it, then I'll pursue my next interest. Um, but if you're like doing one of those things where it's like, okay, Monday, I'm going to study this, Tuesday, I'm going to study this, Wednesday, this, Thursday, that, that, that is a little bit too scatterbrained. Um, at least for me, I'm talking, you know, from my personal experience, um, Makiko, um, I'm not sure if you wanted to talk on the previous point or this point, but either way, go for it. Yeah, I would say uh, to filter down to the absolute essential, uh, pick a project or uh, try to do some work in the area that you want to be doing work in um, and then do like need driven learning um, and also uh, follow less people <laughs> on LinkedIn. It's, it, it, it's helped me personally, like really like filtering down my newsfeed. Of course, I follow everyone here in this call, just saying, just putting it out there. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I think it does help. I think it does help a lot because I'm going to be honest, there are a lot of people who will. Um, well, OK, there's a lot of people who post memes, which honestly, that's not an issue. Um, but also, too, there are some people who uh, literally all they do is they post like the newest library, like the newest NLP library that, that's come out. Um, and the reality is, I think for there's only a, a subset of people for whom that's really kind of that information is kind of applicable, you know. So really think about like what information do you sort of need to both sort of like do your job, but also to just be adjacent to the next horizon. And then when you're doing studying, make it really like need based. Uh, I think uh, Carlos, Mark, uh, and I think Curtis. Like I think there's this thread where Carlos Carlos said if he had 90 days to go find a job, what would he do? I think people remember that, right? Yeah, yeah, that's correct. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think a few other people on this call did their own versions of like this is what it would look like for them. Um, it's good to really think about that because like uh, if you're going to be doing like research, then you should be doing some kind of like research project, or you should be sort of building up your skills along there, right? Like if you're doing like engineering work, um, you know, you should be building your skills along engineering and skills doesn't always mean like tool fluency. It literally means like what the being able to do the job or do the tasks that you can do. Right. So like that's that. my two cents. I like the concept, like need-based driven, uh, need-based learning. I, I kind of call that like learning on demand, just kind of doing the thing that you need to, to do the next thing. Uh, let's hear from first Kalpana, then we'll go to Ken, and then we'll go to Curtis. It's That's too many Ks in a row. That's the wrong number of Ks in a row. So Kalpana, uh, Ken, then Curtis. Yeah, well, um, actually, I feel like the best way to um, to go about this, and especially, yeah, like as Mikiko said, that projects are like the best way to do it. But um, within that, when you select a project, I think going backwards is the best way because you start with something interesting and something in in plain English, not in terms of the tools, not in terms of data, not in terms of something you Googled that was really done over and over in data. You start with a, a problem statement like, I want to know how I could find out if customers across the web like this, for instance, just for instance. And it's a very, it's a, it's a very English thing. It's not a data thing right now. At, in the beginning, it's not, an, it's not a data thing. And then you start going backwards. You start breaking down that sentence. You start seeing what that problem statement means. And then, and then comes the need-driven learning. As uh, as you and Mikiko said, and then and then you look at okay now what do I need? What does this need? Okay, so you take a part of the sentence and you see 
how am I going to translate this into quantity? From quality, you're going to quantity now. And then once you get into quantity, you start saying, okay, now how do I handle this quantity? How do I verify this quantity? And in other words, what you'll be doing are processes as you need it from, from data science, from model building, from machine learning. But it's just that if you think about it in those terms, just thinking about it and dividing it in your head in those terms can sometimes bias you towards taking methods that are more used rather than taking something that is more required in, like, in the moment. And you never know, sometimes while you're going this way and looking at completely focusing on what you need and what might be the most efficient way or the smartest way to do something, you might find something new something that actually is research that is not that has not been done before and i think everyone who wants to get in should start with something they'd like to find something they'd like to solve in english and go backwards and then present that just to be clear can it be your language of choice or does it have to be english because i think you no, just I mean, getting, <laughs> getting, getting like logic <laughs> like getting at the logic of it yeah uh, yeah all right uh, it could be it could be chinese <laughs> it could yeah. be anything or in amaninder's case baji it could be in Punjabi. Um, let's go to let's go do Ken and then Curtis. Well, you both just said um, what I had kind of rumbling around in my mind, but a lot more eloquently and more clearly than I could have. So uh, I want to triple down on the the projects and also the problem statement. I mean, as if you, you're familiar with any of my content, you know I'm an absolute project zealot, um, and I really think that that's the best best way to narrow the feature space as much as possible. On the flip side of that, I also think that there's some behavioral adjustments you can make to avoid burnout or to um, or to really you know, like maximize your productivity and your and your bandwidth. And one of those comes from forming really good habits around data science and, and learning and continued learning. And it's not that you're going to go and, and every day you're going to learn a new package. It's that you're focusing on this problem but every day you're taking a little bit of time to, to incrementally improve your skills. And if every day at 9 a.m., I know that 9 to 10 I'm working and, and doing some form of learning, over time you just get up and do that. It's, you don't just, uh, it's not as hard over time, right? It can be really hard to, to just get started. And if you programmed yourself to get started every day or, or whatever days it is that you choose to study, I think that that can be a really um, maybe opposite end of the spectrum uh, effective approach for just maximizing your potential within the career. Yeah. And it just starts small too, right? Like if, if you're making that commitment to that routine, it could be as simple as I'm just reading one page. I'm just going to read one page. I'm just going to write one line of code. I'm just going to do one thing. And that helps make that habit kind of cement and just, you know, makes it more seamless. And then you just build on top of that. Um, definitely check out Kenji 66 days of data. Check out Kenji on YouTube. You know what? All you have to do is type in Ken on YouTube and I'm pretty sure his is the first thing that comes up. Uh, you might want to fact check that, but it, I think you just type in Ken into Google. So he's like Seth Godin. You just type in Ken. It's the first thing that comes up. That's awesome. Uh, but, I wouldn't count on that. But. <laughs> uh, Ken, thank you so much, man. I appreciate that. And Ken's got some yep. great content all around this, this, this uh, kind of learning how to learn type of topic and um, you know, how to optimize the learning. So definitely I'm in there. Go come in there. Go check out Ken's. Uh, YouTube channel if you have not already. Let's go to, um, I was going to go to Curtis and after Curtis, we're going to go to Eric. And then again, uh, if anybody has questions, put it into the chat on whatever platform you are on uh, and I'll make sure we get to it. Go for it, Curtis, and then Eric. Hello, everyone. It's been so long. Yeah, man, it's been a very long time. Good to see <laughs> Thank you back. Um, I actually just fact-checked and it, it worked. Like I typed Ken, came up. Even though he's probably, my, it's because he's in my recent search, but definitely works. 
<laughs> um, me, uh, well, when, this is from a personal standpoint, so I don't know if it's like probably answering your question or not, but I feel like whenever I get to a point of information overload is because I've been procrastinating anyway. So, um, and I, I just use that like information consumption as a form of I'm still working hard. Um, so I guess it's just about being honest with yourself and saying like, am I really doing the things I'm meant to be doing? So, you know, you want to learn a skill, you want to learn something, get hands on. And everyone said it well enough. Like it's just, if it's, there's a project that you want to be doing, just be honest with yourself. Start the project, have a time that you're, you know, you, you want to end the project or a time that you want to, you know, start on a certain task or something like that. And just try and make your projects as real as possible. Like you, you, you want to try and simulate the real world in a practice environment and just get it going like that. I feel like that's just the best way that, like, um, yeah, <laughs> that's it. I, I think everyone has really touched on it really, really well. And that's yeah. it. And you do, you, I mean, you do a lot of writing as well. So do you kind of, like, how does that work for you? So you, you'll pick something to, to kind of go deep into, then you'll write about it and then you kind of move on to the next thing. How do you choose the next thing that you work on? Right. Um, so, uh, I actually batch everything. So like a month in advance, I'll, I'll create a big calendar. Like I have a day where I have like just, you know, an hour where I'm writing ideas. Like I'll write out like hundred ideas and then I just pick and choose and fill in the calendar. And maybe along the month, like I might get a moment of inspiration. I'm like, oh crap, let me just write about this now because it's inspired me. And I'll push back whatever I've got to do to like a later day. Um, yeah, because I, I know I'm going to be creating, like is my goal to at least push three articles a week to about on average about 12 a month. And so um, it, it's, it's really difficult for me to like be just going on a whim, like boom, boom, boom. So I, I really have to do like think ahead. So that's and my is, is it kind of just like one topic at a time or do you like divide your, your time up? Like, okay, like, like you're talking about, you know, over the course of the week, uh, you try to write three articles, like three articles on the same thing, three articles on different topics. How do you approach that? Um, so it that depends on what I'm learning. So if you follow my articles, you know what I'm working on in that week. That that's the gist sort of thing. Like, um, but as of now, it's kind. I'm trying to. I'm well. I'm not trying to. I've set a plan in place to divide it up where I can like now talk about freelancing a bit more because I feel like that's somewhere people don't really touch on, but people are quite curious about it. And then also I have like a part of the week where I'm just talking about data science or machine learning or whatever it is. So yeah, right on, man. Thank you and. Uh... For the freelancing stuff, there's uh, Finkster on YouTube who's got some awesome content. I've been really digging his stuff lately. Uh, check out Finkster. Uh, he has like an entire series just on freelancing. Let's go to Eric. Eric, go for it. Yep. Just one thing I wanted to throw out there is an important part, I think, of avoiding burnout and overload is recognizing when you feel it and like taking a break. It's totally fine to take a break. There's a also like trying to manage it ahead of time. Like there's a super smart aspiring data conference speaker. I know Mark Freeman, who uh, says, if you know what a hundred percent is, you know, you want to try and stay at 75% of what you can handle so that, you know, you have that, that, that flexibility, you know, if you need it, but otherwise like take a break and also like, don't pressure yourself to do all the things all the time. You can count on precisely zero fingers, the number of deep learning projects or anything that I have tried because 
I don't want to, I'm not interested in it and I don't need it. Um, other people are going to take care of it, you know? And so I work on the things that are interesting to me and that I want to talk about and, and work on. And, and like right now I haven't been super active, like on LinkedIn and I haven't posted a lot lately because I just started a new job. All my brain stuff is taken up with that. Like I don't have time to, to, to be, you know, posting a bunch of other stuff and, and be enjoying it. And so, you know, just enjoy, enjoy the journey because at the end of the day, like that's what you're on is, is the journey. Great tips there, Eric. I, I really like that. And I like that point about just kind of following your own obsession, following your own curiosity, following what makes you excited. Uh, Alan Watts, uh, the philosopher has this quote, do things that are delightful to you, you thereby become delightful to others. And I think that is why Eric is so gosh darn delightful. Uh, either Makiko or Greg, whoever would like to uh, go first. Uh, Greg, Makiko's pointing at you. You're, Greg is pointing to nobody on my screen. Makiko, go ahead. You're already unmuted, Greg. Just go. No, you, you can go, Greg, because you're unmuted. <laughs> oh, yeah. I was going to say, I was going to say these things happen to to a lot of people. And, and me, I'm I'm personally guilty. It's like this question is talking to me right now because I try to stay, uh, you know, uh, updated with the latest trends about multiple subjects. So, uh, uh, you know, what I've done for AI is, you know, tap into not only great content creators on LinkedIn, but also set articles that I try to read. But sometimes I go, ah, crap. So I don't have time for this right now. And the next thing you know, these articles that are popping on your emails once a week, next thing you know, you have 10 of them you haven't read yet. And it can be, be very, very, um, I guess, uh, overwhelming. And then at the same time, I'm trying to keep up with the startups, you know, how to create a new uh, best tips for startups. Uh, what are the startups right now out there that are uh, uh, evolving? What are the saying out there? What are the different industries uh, that are uh, pushing uh, different startups and things like that? Um, I follow Jason Calacanis a lot. Um, he interviews a lot of uh, these guys. So um, I, I listen to what they say. Um, but it could be very overwhelming. And if I already have another set of articles that I'm uh, trying to read about AI specifically, uh, and then you have, you know, my uh, other one that I follow, uh, news about venture capitals and things like that. Where is the money going? Where, where is the money floating to? Uh, what do they hear? What do they like to listen to? So when I think about all of these, then at my job, to I do a lot of reading. So I get stressed a lot. So in this sense, it's kind of like, to Eric's point, when I recognize this stress, I kind of let go. I say, okay, I don't care. Uh, because if I don't do it, you know, nobody's going to punish me. And, uh, you know, I can, I can let it go for a little bit, refresh myself, um, uh, get some rest, and then go back to it again to, to stay, uh, you know, uh, back on top to, to at least uh, be in the know uh, for most of the things. So uh, whoever has that question, don't feel bad. And at the end of the day, it's uh, your strategy, but I do believe in the power of focusing. So when you focus uh, uh, your scope, uh, you get to be more productive. So uh, the more you increase, the more you want to become the, the jack of all trades, uh, you kind of uh, uh, leave uh, something out uh, on, on the table. So uh, you can't be a generalist uh, at the same time, be uh, the, 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 the top expert in multiple subjects. So you have to understand how to, uh, make those, uh, trade-offs and, uh, uh, understand that 
uh, your your actions are the ones that will uh, uh, take you or you taking action or uh, the things that will get you closer to the goal uh, you're trying to achieve. Yeah, it's just a long lifetime of reading, of learning, of doing and creating. Like you just, it's just, it's a long lifetime of it. So I think once, when we're in the middle of doing the thing, it becomes so burdensome because we see no end in sight. Um, and that's okay. Sometimes you just got to do what Greg says and just, ah, fuck it. I'm, I'm done with this topic. Let me just give myself a break. Uh, Mikiko, go for it. Yeah, I think um, saying no is incredibly healthy. And also like, for example, what Eric just did where he's like, I don't work on deep learning projects because I'm not interested and I don't want to. That is like an incredibly healthy outlook to have is recognizing that there are certain some skills or um piece of knowledge that you don't sort of immediately need and to be able to be able to say like hey like i actually don't you know i don't want to invest time in this it's not aligned with the work i want to be doing or where i want to go um and it's actually really powerful when you do that because like so like six or seven months ago or whatever like i quit a full-time job to go work on a startup because i was just totally dissatisfied with the work i was doing as a data scientist right and i had come up with this six month massive roadmap i'm like i'm gonna do all these classes i'm gonna do all these things um i'm even gonna like learn c plus plus again even though i hated it in college and why would i ever do that to myself right oh and java and scala because that's what we need like i made that mistake even though honestly i should know better by now right um and i was freaking out so i'm like oh my god i don't know these things i'm never gonna get another job as an mle um you know but look i did and uh it was funny because like some of the interviews were a little bit bonkers what they were asking for. That's okay. You have unreasonable people everywhere. Um, but you know, a lot of the interviews were very reasonable. They said, they said, Hey, like, what are your projects and walk us through that. Right. But the fun part was also they're like, as an ML, as an MLE, they're like, do you also want to be doing data science at the same time? And I went, no, never in a million years ever again. And they're like, Oh my God, thank God. <laughs> they were like so happy about that because they're like, look, it's really hard to find candidates who are very like know exactly what they want to be doing and working on and who are willing to say it, you know, because they're like, we're trying to hire these candidates who are like just very wide set of skills and they can't really do anything useful. So they were okay with the fact that I probably only know like three languages very well. One, like two languages very well. One, okay, at, right? And by okay, I mean not great, right? But they were okay with that because they said like, hey, you know, like for them, it was really like knowing one of, but the only way I was able to get to that level of competency was to say, get everything else out. Um, and there's this like famous uh, story, right? With um, the billionaire, Warren. Um, he had a story, right? Where he had talked to his air, uh, his airplane pilot, right? He said, you know, make a list of 25 things that you want goals for your life. And then he was like, okay, pick the top five. And he said, ignore the other 20 as much as possible, because those are going to be distractions against your like top five goals. So having that kind of, um, uh, relentless discipline is really, really healthy. Saying no is really, really healthy, but it's just weird in the data science machine learning space. Kind of people kind of make you feel like, Oh, you have to know everything. You have to be interested in everything. You have to be interested in X, Y, Z and crypto and da, 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 da. And it's like, no, you can actually just, you know, pick a few topics, few of your interests, build your work around that. Um, and then just sign off when you're, when you're done. Thank you very much, Mikiko, for that uh, insight. Appreciate that. Um, so uh, Ken has a 
interesting uh, point here. I'd love to learn more about this. Maybe Ken, if you can link us to a video as well, talking about personal baselines are super important. Um, huge nerd about collecting his own data on what he gets done each day. I'd love to learn a little bit more about how you do that, what tools you use. And if you have a YouTube video that kind of goes into it, like link us to that. Um, and Ken, while you get prepared to answer that question, there's a question here in LinkedIn. This question is coming from, uh, from Akshay and he is a mechanical engineer, non-CS, has recently graduated with a master's degree in data science and has an internship at a startup in New York. What would your advice be on securing a full-time position as a data scientist in the United States? Um, we've covered this question quite a bit in, um, in numerous other happy hours and on the podcast and stuff. Uh, just apply for jobs. I think you are, without knowing more, I would say like mechanical engineer with a master's degree in data scientist plus an internship, uh, just apply for jobs and keep applying for them. And when you're ready to give up applying for jobs, just apply for like two more uh, and you know, reach out to people and stuff like that. Um, but Ken, talk to us. I actually, I linked the video in the, in the zoom chat, oh, awesome. um, but yeah, I, I, a while ago realized that I was setting extremely unrealistic expectations. I saw what other people were doing and I was wondering why I couldn't, do that why i didn't have you know why i couldn't code for you know seven hours a day straight why i couldn't do things that frankly for me seemed an impossibility and i just started auditing my life a little bit more effectively you know i track my sleep i was already tracking my sleep actually and i track some of the other things that i do and i figured why not start tracking my workflow why not start evaluating how many different things i can do in a day um, i've all for the last couple of years i've essentially wrote down everything i was going to do each day or scheduled it to the hour and understanding how often i was missing or how i was estimating time for doing things has been really powerful because i was and i'm still working on it i was not good at estimating anything i thought something would take 20 minutes and it would take 5 or it would take two and a half hours and I'd go down this giant rabbit hole. So if you're better able to understand yourself and usually you can understand yourself a little bit better through data, um, you can start to set significantly more realistic expectations about yourself and your time. And it's a lot easier to understand, like Eric was saying, when you're overextending or when you can pick up more. Thanks, Ken. Appreciate that. I'm definitely going to be taking a look at that YouTube video as well. Um, I mean, Greg, but let's hear from you on, on this question we had in from LinkedIn because you, you're me, like mechanical engineer by training. If, if I recall correctly, I could be mixing that up. But industrial. Industrial. It's uh, still close enough, I guess, to, to engineering. Uh, but let's, uh, let's, you know, quick word of advice here for Akshay, who uh, wants to know his advice on securing a full-time position as a data scientist in the United States with a master's in data science and a um, internship. Uh, Ken, thanks for hanging out, man. Good seeing you here. Appreciate, appreciate you coming through and, and go for it, go for it. Um, Greg, and then let's hear from Vin on this topic afterwards. Uh, Eric, thanks for swinging, swinging by. Yeah. Uh, uh, great to see you, uh, Ken, uh, Eric. Um, the question is from actually, uh, he, he has a master's degree from a university in the, in the U S yeah, and has an internship uh, from a startup in New York. Got it. And he wants to know uh, what's the best way to to, to break into uh, data science. Yeah, to, to get a full-time job in data science. Got it. I guess, um, so uh, in terms of... Um, if he's not getting any anything now, he's gonna have to go the the hard way, which is probably get another uh, internship and try to see if he can apply uh, data science type skills set uh, in 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 at the internships uh, that he may find um, in the future. Other than that, I don't see any other way than uh, 
you know, building a, a, a portfolio. I mean, we, we talk about that all the time, right? You have to have a, a portfolio where you're pulling real life uh, use cases and, 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 and building uh, some key projects that you're making uh, hires feel comfortable that uh, you can solve their, their, their issues. Uh, I don't think they will care that you have a mechanical uh, uh, engineering degree or industrial for that matter. Uh, they, they just want to see that you are able to uh, uh, solve their, their problems. So uh, with that, the other thing is uh, too, is you know, uh, keep networking and, and building your uh, resume in a way where you're, you're showcasing that uh, uh, you, you qualify for the job and, and, and keep trying. So uh, if you're not getting any answers from companies uh, with regards to jobs that uh, you're looking for, maybe the number of years of experience required, you're not meeting that, and you want to go after uh, certain entry-level jobs. So um, as an international uh, student or former international student, um, I finished my master's, but my first job was actually an entry-level. So, um, you know, I was... um, it, 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 it can be discouraging, but all you need is that, that one entry point. Um, and, and maybe your first position doesn't have to be, oh, I, I want to be my first position to be data scientist. Maybe you want to enter as an analyst and then, and then start uh, working your way uh, uh, up there. Uh, you know, don't settle on, hey, if I don't get that uh, data scientist uh, position, uh, then it all is doomed. Uh, try to find different strategies, try to find different positions uh, where, you know, your role might be similar and then uh, start to move your way out. You have to uh, really start proving yourself to the hires first, and then you can move on to the things that you want to do uh, in the future. Trust me, I've been there. Uh, being an international student in the United States is not the easiest thing. It's not the glorious, most glorious thing. Uh, you'll have the highest uh, qualifications, but you have to do the time, start from the bottom, and it's only a strategy. It's not a, a final point. Thank you very much, Greg, for that insight. I mean, also, man, like just, I mean, look, it's a shameless plug here for my own thing, data science dream job. We kind of, that's what we specialize in is helping guide people through the data science dream search process, or rather, yeah, data science job search process, uh, dsdj.co forward slash free training. Check it out. Um, you know, helped literally over 2,700 students in the program and like success rate is super high, but Mark, let's hear from you on this topic. Uh, and then I'll close the door for questions after that. Yeah. Um, so similar to what I just want to really echo a great Greg said, like my first job out of my master's was an entry-level role, not even data. It was an operations. Um, and my, I, my kind of cohort I went with were like fresh out of college with no no job experience since I, and I had this master's in job experience, but it was my first role in tech um, that wasn't an internship. So I just took it and ran with it. And the key thing was that even though it wasn't a data role, I made it a data role. And surprisingly, when I have it on my resume, everyone just assumes I was, I was like a data analyst role because I just zoned in on like the parts that were data focused. Anything that had to excel, I, I, I just really zoned in like, you know, found data discrepancies um, using sheets, right? Or I would automate it in Python um, for myself and really highlight that. So, um, you know, it doesn't have to be a data role specifically. You can make something <laughs> a data role, especially if you're using Excel for a lot of your work. Um, and then the second thing, kind of like thinking back to when I actually quit the operations role and I was like, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make this data science thing happen. <laughs> um, and I, I gave myself like three months <laughs> to kind of figure that out. And 
I'm just going to make the assumption that you like your internship at a startup and you want to do startups. Um, and I think because I feel like startups are an amazing way to kind of get that your foot in the door, um, especially that 50 to 100 size range. I feel like that's a really great place to, to really um, get access to decision makers very easily and then make your case to those individuals. And so my whole strategy is actually finding those startups who I had domain expertise in, so it was healthcare for me, um, where I can just go talk to the decision maker. I'll just go on LinkedIn or Crunchbase, wherever it may be, and just say like, hey, I'm trying to be a, trying to, to work with data, solve your data problems. Here's my domain knowledge. I can do X, Y, Z with data. Let's talk about what your problems are and let's see if there's any mutual opportunities. Many times they don't even have a data role open, but they have a pain point. And they might open a role for you um, or they're looking and, you know, you get your foot in the door with a decision maker. Um, and that's way better than just sending out, um, sending out kind of blind applications. And the key thing why I say, like, because you have startup experience already, you can really like spin that and say like, yeah, I've worked in the startup before. I know the hustle. I know you have to be really flexible. I got this down. And that'll give you a big leg up in the startup world. Thank you very much for that, Mark. Appreciate that. Uh, I like Kelly's comment in the chat from a few minutes ago, uh, often find myself running around the data space like a chicken with its head cut off, trying to learn everything because that's what you see on LinkedIn social media. Yeah, that happened to me as well when I first uh, you know, was transitioning from traditional statistics to uh, data science. I felt, felt much the same way. Um, shout out to uh, Makiko. Thanks for coming to hang out. Shout out to Kalpana for staying up. Like, I don't know what time it is in India right now, but uh, probably quite late. It's so 4 a.m. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, thanks. Thanks for coming uh, and hanging out. Uh, Vivian, what's up? Shout out to Vivian. Haven't heard from you all day, uh, but happy to have you here. Um, don't see any other questions in any platform, uh, nothing on YouTube, Twitch, or LinkedIn anymore. Um so we can begin to wrap it up, guys. Thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to come hang out with me today. Uh, uh, check out Vin's YouTube. Check out Vin's courses. I'm excited for that course. I think that is next week. Uh, I'm super, super pumped for that. I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, you've got some other amazing courses up there as well. Um, check out dsdj.co forward slash free dash training to uh, just get some awesome, actionable, useful tips that you can start implementing in your job search today. Be sure to check out the episode I released today with the one and only Data Science Thunder from Down Under, Steve Nori. Uh, next week, I got an episode releasing with uh, Jamie Woodhouse uh, talking about this philosophy called sentientism. And then the week after that uh, episode with Kenji himself. Take care, everybody. Thank you so much for, for being here and hanging out. Remember, you've got one life on this planet. Why not try to do something big? Cheers, everyone. <laughs>